The year is 1922, and it's not a particularly momentous year, but some things do happen that will make a difference in later years to come. The Ottoman Empire, which began in the 13th century, dissolves, making way for the creation of the Republic of Turkey as a linchpin between Christian Europe and the Muslim Middle East. The civil war in Russia draws to a close with the official formation of the Soviet Union. Meanwhile in the U.S., growing numbers of young women are beginning to flaunt their newfound sense of liberation by wearing short skirts that just brush their knees, working outside the home, and drinking alcohol in public. And in that year of 1922, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Eugene O'Neill's Anna Christie, a drama about the uneasy triangle that forms between a barge captain, the grown daughter who has spent hard years fending for herself after he abandoned her as a child, and the seaman who falls for her without knowing her past. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. This episode marks the second anniversary of all the drama. And as I did last year, I've decided to devote this anniversary episode to one of the four plays by Eugene O'Neill that won the Pulitzer. Anna Christie was actually only the fourth play to win a Pulitzer Prize, which was first given in 1918. The judges didn't consider anything worthy the following year, but awarded the prize to O'Neill's Beyond the Horizon in 1920, and then circled back to him two years later, certifying O'Neill as the dominant dramatist of his era. I gave a full rundown of O'Neill's early years in last year's episode on Beyond the Horizon, so I'm only going to recap a few of the highlights here. O'Neill was born on October 16, 1888, to the famous actor James O'Neill and his wife, Mary Ellen. After spending his boyhood in boarding schools while his parents and his father's acting company toured the country, O'Neill went to Princeton, but dropped out after a year and spent most of his early 20s working as a seaman on commercial ships, living in waterfront dives, and drinking a lot. But when a bout of tuberculosis landed him in a sanatorium, he used the time there to begin writing plays. When he got out, he even spent a semester sharpening his craft in George Pierce Baker's pioneering playwriting course at Harvard. But O'Neill really came into his own as a writer when he hooked up with the Provincetown Players, a group of Greenwich Village artists, writers, and activists devoted to creating theater that was more artistic and more serious than the commercial shows then playing on Broadway. Most of O'Neill's early works for the players centered around the people he'd met during his time at sea and the stories they'd told him. Anna Christie started off as the story of a former seaman he knew who spent his time drinking at O'Neill's favorite bar, Jimmy the Priest, and complaining about what he called the Old Devil's Sea, a phrase that O'Neill obviously loved because he uses it repeatedly in Anna Christie. The real-life seaman finally got a job as the captain of a coal barge, but he died after getting so drunk that he fell off the boat and froze to death in the water, 
The plot, in the early version of the play that he inspired, revolves around an immigrant seaman trying to protect his naive daughter from marrying a man like himself, who earns a precarious living on the seas. O'Neill called that play Chris Christofferson, and it opened in Atlantic City in March of 1920, where it got such poor reviews that a transfer to New York was out of the question. So O'Neill put it aside and focused on another play based on a story that a friend told him about the Haitian dictator Vilbrom Guillaume Sarm, who supposedly had spread the legend that he could only be killed by a silver bullet. That became the motivating factor for O'Neill's next major work, The Emperor Jones. O'Neill insisted that the dictator be played by a black actor instead of a white actor wearing blackface makeup, as was customary in those days. And so the Provincetown Players opened the Emperor Jones at their playhouse in Greenwich Village on November 1, 1920, with the actor Charles S. Gilpin, a veteran of Harlem's all-black Lafayette players, in the lead role. An instant hit, the Emperor Jones moved to Broadway a month later, where it ran for nearly 200 performances. Two more plays quickly followed. The first, different, was about a middle-aged woman who lusted after a younger man, and it ran for a then-decent 100 performances, even though it pissed off feminists, including many of O'Neill's friends. The second play, called Gold, ran for just 13 performances. But through all of it, O'Neill couldn't get the Chris Christopherson story out of his head. According to his biographer, Robert M. Dowling, it was O'Neill's wife, the fiction writer Agnes Bolton, who suggested he turn the naive daughter into a streetwise prostitute. That next version of the play, centered around the daughter's story and now called Anna Christie, opened at Broadway's Vanderbilt Theater on November 2, 1921, and ran for 177 performances before its star, Pauline Lord, took the play to London, where it was also a big hit. Maybe still sensitive to the criticism that Different had received, O'Neill gave Anna what we now call some feminist agency. When her father and lover fight over her future, Anna chides them both, saying, God, you'd think I was a piece of furniture. I'll do what I please, and no man, I don't give a hoot who he is, can tell me what to do. I ain't asking either of you for a living. I can make it myself, one way or other. Some reviewers criticized the play for copping out with what they considered to be a happy ending. But O'Neill didn't think it was a happy ending, and he actually wrote a column for the New York Times in an attempt to explain that the final scene was much more open-ended and the future of the characters far less predictable than they thought. By the summer of 1922, O'Neill had come fully into his own professionally. He'd had nine plays on Broadway in just two years, an astonishing run. He's also received a gold medal from the National Institute of Arts and Letters, and his plays were becoming known in Europe. And, of course, there were the two Pulitzers. Anna Christie has been revived three times since then on Broadway. The first revival in 1952 with Celeste Holm as Anna lasted only eight performances, 
but the 1977 revival starring Leif Ullman as Anna and John Lithgow as her lover, and directed by the great O'Neill interpreter Jose Quintero, ran for 124 performances. And according to Lithgow's autobiography, it also produced a passionate love affair between its two leads. In 1993, Natasha Richardson and Liam Neeson starred in a production staged by British director David Laveau. It only ran 53 performances, but it won that year's Tony for Best Revival, along with awards from the Drama Desk and Outer Critics Circle. And, as happened in 1977, the leads fell in love. I saw that production, and you could see the heat between them. Richardson ended up divorcing her husband and marrying Neeson. The couple had two sons before she died in 2009 after suffering a head injury during a skiing accident. She was just 45. More recently, the British actors Ruth Wilson and Jude Law starred in a 2011 production at London's Dunmar Warehouse. It won the Olivier for Best Revival, and according to news reports at the time, Wilson and Law also hooked up for a while. There was also a musical version of Anna Christie called The New Girl in Town that opened in Broadway in 1957 with a book and direction by George Abbott, a score by Bob Merrill, and a Tony-winning performance by Gwen Verdon. It ran for 431 performances. But the most famous adaptation may be the 1930 film with Greta Garbo as Anna. It opened early in Hollywood sound era and was marketed with the famous tagline, Garbo Talks. Her opening line, give me a whiskey with ginger ale on the side and don't be stingy, baby, was taken straight from the play, but is still one of the most iconic moments in movie history. His four Pulitzer Prizes and the fact that so many of them are still being done a century later make O'Neill a founding father of modern American drama. And there is always so much to say about him. And this time out, my conversation is with Beth Weinstra, a professor at Babson College in Boston and the author of a new book on O'Neill called Vows, Veils, and Mask, The Performance of Marriage in the Plays of Eugene O'Neill. It will be out this summer. Hello, Beth Weinstra. Welcome to All the Drama. Thank you so much for having me, Jan. I am wondering, how did you first encounter Eugene O'Neill and what drew you to his work? Well, I grew up just 15 minutes away from Dow House in Danville, California, which is a national park dedicated to Eugene O'Neill. It was where he wrote his late great plays like Long Day's Journey into Night and A Moon for the Misbegotten. And so I grew up very close to there. And actually, my mother was the president of the Eugene O'Neill Foundation. Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> yes. So I would be brought up to help her schlep tables and get things ready for events soon became a love for Eugene O'Neill. And I, I turned seriously to his works in college. 
And and then it just kind of went from there. (laughs) Where does this play? Where does Anna Christie sort of line up on your list of faves? Well, I am deeply interested in the women in Eugene O'Neill's works. So Anna Christie ranks very, very highly for me. And I've been very fortunate to have seen a few just terrific productions of the play. And as a matter of fact, I'm actually working as a dramaturg or the theater researcher for a production of Anna Christie right now. And that production is going to be done by the Eugene O'Neill Foundation in the fall. So it's a play that has long held my interest as a scholar, as an audience member, and, and as a researcher. What do you think drew the Pulitzer board to this play? Why do you think they went with this one? You know, I I see Anna Christie as play cognizant of past traditions, but also pushing toward truly modern and truly revolutionary ways of handling characters and telling a story. So for instance, American audiences by 1922, which was the year that Anna Christie won the Pulitzer, uh, American audiences would have been used to seeing theatrical works featuring a prostitute, you know, a prostitute seeking change or redemption. Mm-hmm. But Anna Christie add in, you know, the harrowing backstory of its title character, and we learn what Anna endured. That backstory is also coupled with what I see as a real feminist stance. So Anna has this wonderful monologue in which she declares she's no longer going to be treated like a piece of furniture. And, you know, that moment is electric. It's just absolutely electric. And in the same way, you know, we have seen really since the Greeks plays about fathers and daughters. But in this play, we get a relationship with all of the painful, poignant dimensions so alive in in real families. And then I guess the last thought I have is I think Anna Christie, like a lot of the plays of O'Neill's in the 1920s, I think it plays with notions of the American dream. So there's a strong immigrant through line in Anna Christie, and it, it really plays with and somewhat dispels those ideas of coming to America and everything is going to be wonderful and you can create the life you want. This is a play that demonstrates that people's pasts are always there, kind of haunting, and that it's not so easy to change one station in life. So all of those things are at work here, which is why I think it's just so worthy of a prize. When you talk, I really see it as of its time, but it also seems to be a play that doesn't really date in the way that works by O'Neill's contemporaries have dated. Why do you think that is? Yes, I really agree with that. And, you know, it's pretty just incredible that in Anna Christie, O'Neill was looking at things like gender-based violence and harassment and power imbalances and, you know, dangerous stereotypes and preconceived notions. And these problems, which are so woven into the play, are the very issues that we're talking about when we think of Me Too and a lot of the current 
discussions around women and women's rights and how we treat sexuality, how we look at someone's past. I mean, these are all all in play right now. And I will say that I saw an incredible production of the play here in Boston. It was done by the Lyric Stage Company, and it was in 2018. So right as news of Harvey Weinstein and Me Too was emerging. And this production used non-traditional casting. We had Black Anna and and a Black Chris. And those elements coupled with what's in the play spoke to this moment in in such powerful ways not only to yes what i've mentioned with you know sexual assault and harassment but you know knowledge about how those things have been so much more pervasive for women of color and so this production that i was seeing on a stage in Boston seemed to be speaking to the world outside the stage walls in such incredible ways. And I I see that as a credit to O'Neill's writing and, of course, also a credit to the brilliant artists who take a chance on this play and and bring it to life. Now, one of your specialties is looking at O'Neill as a writer of women's roles. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because we sometimes criticize male writers for how they treat their female characters. And I'm interested in how you think O'Neill does with that. Yes, my book really focuses on the engagements and weddings and marriages so crucial to the tragic action in O'Neill's works. And Jan, I'm actually going to use your words. Uh, You had a wonderful podcast on Beyond the Horizon that I would encourage all of your listeners to go back and and revisit. You're so nice. Well, it's very true. And I loved how you described O'Neill's reputation with the women in his plays. And and, and these are your words, that they can sometimes seem weak and whiny. (laughs) And that O'Neill does have a dicey reputation with his treatment of women. And So when I began really my journey with O'Neill, I was encountering scholarship and writing that was at best dismissive and at worst downright hostile about women and particularly wife characters in O'Neill's works. And I wanted to push back on, on those readings because, well, first of all, we know that some of the most acclaimed, talented actors have taken on these wife roles throughout the years. And also, O'Neill is a playwright who is who's cognizant of the world around him and aware of systems of oppression and discrimination. And it was hard for me to see him as one that would not be extending such understanding to, to the women in his plays. And what I found in my research was that first, there was just an explosion of marital guidance and advice literature for women at the first part of the 20th century. And much of it was, I think, connected to societal anxiety about the new freedoms that women were experiencing in the wake of suffrage and Mm -hmm. first wave feminism. And I was was reading these, you know, marital advice books and magazine columns and, and even the very advertisements that would appear right next to notices of O'Neill's plays or reviews of his plays in in magazines and newspapers, what I was seeing is women were being asked 
to perform in in very specific ways with very specific behavior if they wanted to become wives and and even after they were married. So much of the guidance and media messaging and societal pressure around courtship and marriage finds fascinating parallels in O'Neill's plays. And one of the most exciting parts of my research was that I was finding that even the very women who were bringing O'Neill's wife characters to life were experiencing themselves similar you know, events as their onstage counterparts. So I now really see O'Neill trying to demonstrate in his plays that the very narrow avenues and limited opportunities women and wives had for not only happy, harmonious partnerships, but happy lives as well. In this play, though, it seems to me the women are the characters who are willing to face reality, and it's Mm -hmm. the men who want to hold on to their illusions. Yes, yes, I think that is absolutely correct. And I think with Anna Christie, we have a play in which O'Neill, you know, kind of flips the script about the very things that was being written about him and his treatment of women, because you're right, Anna, and we can't forget Marcy, who's one Mm -hmm. of my most favorite (laughs) characters. They are absolutely realistic and see the world as it is. And understand the systems of oppression they've been living under. So you're absolutely correct. And I would argue that forthright and that and that intelligence and keen awareness is not just with these two women in this play, but can be seen throughout O'Neill's works. It also seemed in the bit of research I did that his wife urged him to rework the play that he'd previously written about this seaman and to move the daughter to the central character. And his wife was a pretty strong woman. He also seemed to move in circles where there were a lot of strong, bright women. Indeed. Absolutely indeed. Agnes Bolton, who was actually his second wife, you know, was a writer herself. And at the start of the marriage between Agnes and Eugene O'Neill, she was the one who was really making the money for the couple from her writing career. And and all the places that, you know, where O'Neill lived from Greenwich Village and other parts of, of New York and Provincetown, he was encountering absolutely women who were intelligent and feminist and who um, were doing really brilliant, creative work around women's issues. So you're, you're absolutely correct. You mentioned earlier that the line between the actors who were performing in his plays and the roles that they were playing, sometimes the line was fuzzy. And I've noticed, and I wondered if you'd noticed, that this play has a reputation for bringing its leads together in romantic relationships offstage that sort of mirror what's going on with Anna and Matt on stage. Yes. 
Well, I have a story about where on stage things starts to reflect off stage events. The actor who performed the role of Anna Christie to great acclaim, Pauline Lord, she herself, just months after performing in Anna Christie, found herself in the middle of a lawsuit. The wife of a prominent actor sued Pauline Lord, and wife said that. Pauline stole the affections of her husband and the newspaper articles and even the lawsuit itself is so riddled with language that we would now identify as kind of the double standard. There's language that says things like the siren call of Pauline Lord's beauty, you know, whisked my husband away through no fault of his own. So it's this this crazy language that. It really treats Pauline Lord, who is not quoted in in any of the newspaper articles, but instead is really objectified left and right. And it is as if this play never took place, a play which O'Neill was trying to demonstrate that people are more than their past reputations or preconceived notions or first impressions. And here, the actor playing Anna Christie was enduring horrific treatment in the in the media. And you know, the other thing I'll say about Anna Christie, you probably know, is that the ending of this play was controversial. That mm-hmm. many critics would come out and say it's a wonderful play until the last act, because. They saw O'Neill as kind of selling out to romantic traditions and that Anna and Matt are going to be married and it's kind of a happy ending. And when in reality, O'Neill saw the ending of the play as more like a comma and not a period. He would write a letter to the the editorial board of the New York Times saying that this these two characters have revealed themselves. They truly understand one another, but life goes on and that a marriage doesn't mean happiness. So you can see that O'Neill had an uphill battle in the society that he was writing for because especially what women were being geared to think about is marriage is is the prominent moment. (laughs) Well, even though today we don't necessarily think that, this place still offers things for both the people who are presenting it and the people who are viewing it to yes. to think about and to to chew over and i want to thank you for for taking some time to do a little chewing over of it <laughs> with us it was wonderful jan thank you so very much well congratulations on the book and congratulations on the new production of the play in the fall Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to me at jan at broadwayradio.com.